0: Alright, turn to Daniel 5. We've got a lot to cover. This is one of the most, I, I, this is, after studying this week, this has become definitely my favorite story in Daniel and perhaps one of my favorite in the entire Bible. This is an incredible um, story, especially paired with the historical accounts that we know of the kingdom of Babylon. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to cover the entire fifth chapter today. So Daniel chapter 5, let's look at it together. I'm going to ask for God's help. And we'll jump in. God, we need your help to, interp- to understand your word, to receive and apply your word. So we ask for that. Father, we just collectively, as your people, confess this is your word, and we believe and claim that it is useful for teaching, preaching, rebuke, uh, and for all things that we need for godliness, that you have granted it right here in your word. So as we approach it, may we, may we come expecting, Father, expecting to be read by it as we approach your scripture, may we expect to be read by, judged by, called to account by your scripture and pointed toward hope in Jesus, your victor, your savior that you gave as a gift to us. So we ask for that help. We, we surrender and approach your word now humbly, asking for your spirit to speak through me and to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word in Jesus' name amen all right well as you see the very first um, words in chapter five are King Belshazzar and if you are following along you're wondering who that is right this is a new character and it hits this chapter just hits the ground running there is no introduction there is no lead up to it it is just boom he's here and he's throwing a crazy bash of a party and it doesn't end well for him this is an awesome story of God's judgment of god's um power and of, of a kingdom, of an empire coming to an end With the power of God's finger. It's a fascinating story, but you got to know a little bit of the background. So King Belshazzar is the guy on the throne in Babylon in this time, but but again, we don't know anything about him. The the book of Daniel is not meant, this is a good reminder, it's not meant to be a full historical account. It's not meant to 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 give us all of the details from you know that history and period in Babylon. It's it's rather it's meant to give God's people hope while they're in exile. God's people hope that even in the midst of, man, we don't know what's God doing. You ever had moments like that in your life or in the life of the country or just in the world that you don't know what he's doing, right? If you're honest, you wonder if he's, if he's not, you know, nodded off for a minute or something, or you wonder if, if he's, you know, got, you, you just don't know, right? This is a book that's meant to, to give us a reminder of, hey, even when that's happening, even over the course of years, God is still in control, even when when circumstances and visually you, you don't see that He is still in control. And so, so this is uh, this is now sixty six years since Daniel was taken and, and and hauled off into Babylon. So Daniel and his friends um, and other Jews, but we we really the the book is revolving around Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these are these young Jewish men who are promising in that culture, and they Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon takes over the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, conquers the the, the temple and takes a bunch of the most gifted um, young men and women into captivity. It's human trafficking. And these guys are like teenagers when this happens. So they've been there for 66 years now. That means Daniel is, yes, indeed, in his 80s. That means the next chapter we're going to get in the lion's den. Daniel is not a young man when he gets tossed into the lion's den. Okay, He is an old man. So he's in his 80s at this point. He's got some life on him. And again, remember, we don't have an account of every bit of Daniel's life, just sort of these these highlight moments. It's an encouragement to us that that even when life seems to be not that spectacular or indeed where is God, like he's still in the midst, and we may not see exactly what he's doing until, in fact, it's happening. And so that is part of what's going on here. But King Belshazzar is this guy. He's new, right? So uh, Daniel's been in Babylon in this kingdom for 66 years. Most of that has been serving and under this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. This guy is a historical figure, reigned over the majority of Babylonian empire's time, and um, and that's been most of the story so far in Daniel. But it shifts now to Belshazzar, and and you got to wonder, who is this guy? Where did he come from? So there's been about 20 or so years between the incident of chapter 4 and now what we approach in chapter 5. And so if you know how chapter 4 ended, Nebuchadnezzar gets a final warning from God, doesn't heed it. God puts him uh, on his face on the ground, literally, uh, in, you know, the dude turns into an animal, to a beast, long fingernails, long hair, eating the grass in the yard for seven years until he humbles himself and repents and he's restored and, and seems to at least give an acknowledgement of, of, of repentance and, and acknowledges that God is indeed the most high, not himself. So that's how it ends, and then we just shift right back into this story. So Belshazzar is... is um, So after Nebuchadnezzar dies, his son takes over, his son is killed, and then that guy takes over, and then there's another guy that kills him and takes over. So now this is, uh, well, I don't know if that guy killed him, but anyway, this group kills him, and they put this guy named Nabonidus on the throne. So Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Nabonidus, if you're looking for kiddo names, Daniel's got a lot. (laughs) Nabonidus is fun, just saying. So Nabonidus is the, the ruler, and if you look in history, he will be the one that decided to be the ruler in charge when the Babylonian Empire falls, okay? So that brings into question, and for years, the book of Daniel was sort of questioned in his authenticity because Belshazzar wasn't a well-documented historical figure. People are like, okay, he didn't even exist, but this book is citing him. And then years later, it's a cool story. You should research it. I won't get into it today. But years later, they, they discover some um, new cuneiform, you know, um, Scripts and writings, and indeed, there in history, they do find that Nabonidus had this son named Belshazzar and that he was a co-regent. He reigned with Nabonidus in the final years of Babylon. So who this is? is this is like third-generation hedge fund spoiled kid. Okay, So Nebuchadnezzar was an incredible, uh, not, in a, not in a good way, because right? he was evil, but as far as military prowess and as far as conquering kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar was a bad dude. He got business done, he conquered kingdoms, he expanded the Babylonian Empire, and he was well-known throughout the world as an incredible ruler. Okay? And so that's Nebuchadnezzar. Well, now you get a few generations past, Babylon is still this world power, but you got this young, jo- young buck that's sitting on the throne, had nothing to do with it, probably never fought a day in his life, certainly hasn't conquered anybody, but he's got the throne. Can you see where this is going? This story should be a movie. I don't know why it isn't. Maybe it is. If it is, tell me. But if not, this is an incredible story from a historical standpoint. So this is the spoiled rich kid. This is the dude who thinks he's something even though he's done nothing to be something. He's got the throne. His dad is on like a 10-year business trip. There's some weird stuff going on. It's kind of religious. It's kind of battle. But nonetheless, he leaves Belshazzar on, on the throne to rule in Babylon while he's out and about. So that's who this guy is. Okay. So picture that. Young, inherited, like got this throne, handed to him, got the riches of Babylon, the power of Babylon, handed to him. We don't know how old he is, but I think he seems to be in the frat boy stage based off of what we're going to get here. So so that's Belshazzar. And he makes a great feast. This is how it starts out. For a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of the household. So right off the bat, in front of the thousand rather, so right off the bat we see this young dude throwing this massive party. I want you to think, for a thousand of his lords. We're gonna see later that their wives and their concubines are invited too. So this is multiple thousands of people in this room. This is a red carpet event, right? This is this is the all the who's who have been invited. This is people are taking pictures, they're not wearing a lot of clothes, but they are on showcase. It is a party amongst parties, right? It is similar. If you remember when we walked through Esther, there was a similar party throne, and a lot of times these were indeed around military campaigns to sort of Uh, gather support or rally the troops and give them a final hurrah, if you will, before we march into battle. We don't know if that's exactly what's going on. We do know, as we'll find out, that Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire, is marching on them. They are coming at them, and so perhaps it's something along those lines. But nonetheless, he throws this incredibly um, lavish party, and he sets the tone by drinking in front of them. That's not really... That doesn't track for us culturally, but in this day and age, the king didn't generally drink in front of the other people, right? He would remain a bit more dignified, if you will. He might throw a party for others to enjoy, but he's not going to, uh, you know, set the stage himself. This bro rolls out with a beer helmet on. Like, he's he's ready to, like, be the chief partier. Like, he's going to set the tone, and he's drinking. So right off the bat, you see this is not going to be a dignified event, right? Right off the bat, you could see that this thing is headed... In a way that some commentators will say it's more, well, there's kids in the room, but it, there's, there's more than just partying going on. There's a lot happening here. This is a nasty situation, a nasty party. So, But it gets crazier because Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, so he, he drinks the wine and he goes, man, that's good. He goes, you know what? Go get those gold vessels commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So then they brought in the golden vessels that they had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the, God of gold, or the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Okay, what's going on? I don't know if you remember back in chapter 1, whenever it noted that Nebuchadnezzar uh, you know, came against Jerusalem... Ransacked the temple and it took some of the vessels. It's just it, it's it's a quick note in chapter one, but it says he took the vessels of the holy temple of God and brought them back to Babylon. If you remember that, that is it is a fulfilling a prophecy from the past in Isaiah when he, God said this would happen if His people did not repent and obey Him, that their their land would be attacked and they were in that enemy right Babylon would carry off their treasured vessels. So it's it's fulfilling that past prophecy, but it's also noting for us to look ahead to this story where this joker gets on the throne and and cranks up his rebellion, cranks up his blasphemy to a a new level that even Nebuchadnezzar had not gone to. And so what is that level? Well, he says, okay, we've got these vessels of gold that came from this temple of Yahweh. right? You've got to think. People know of Yahweh. They know of the, the Israelite God. They know what he did in Egypt. Right? All of that has happened. The, 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 god, like Yahweh is known as one of the gods, right? And and so you know Babylon and, and the rulers they're they're um, polytheists, right? They've got a pantheon of gods, and they they you know you see they praise the god of gold and silver and wood, right? Well, they just you know they put Yahweh right in there, the god of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar's even acknowledged, oh yeah, he's a pretty awesome god. He might even be the god of gods, but he still you know needs to bow to me. So there's some real twistedness going on there. But nonetheless, Yahweh is known. To these people. And the story of him conquering Egypt through the plagues, through the Red Sea, is historically known. These guys would know that. And so for this guy to say, hey, go get me the gold vessels from that God's temple and we're going to party with them, is a new level of mockery and blasphemy that even his evil predecessor Nebuchadnezzar never went to. And so He takes the vessels from the Israelite temple, and he and his wife... And and so again, that that is indicative, because a lot of times, if you remember in Esther... When, when the men would start drinking in these parties, the women would exit and go to another room, right? That was pretty common in these state affairs. If the men were going to sort of, you know, do their thing, the women would, would leave and go elsewhere. Well, and, and then maybe the concubines would be brought in. But here it's everybody, right? The wives and concubines, and that's exactly what you think they might be. Uh, they're there, right? And they're all there together. And this is, this is the party, that's the direction the party is headed. And so he drinks wine, and he's really... In the mood and celebrating, and he says, "Hey, go get me those vessels." So what's going on here? Well, he's—he's. He's, you think about it. If there is this military push, if there is, they know that they're being uh, marched upon by Persia, the great Babylonian Empire. I want you to feel the tension nationally. I want you to feel the tension of that empire and wondering, okay, we're we we we're, we're, we're going to be attacked. Nobody's ever been able to touch us before. But what's your plan, King? Right? What's your, what's your plan? What are you going to do? How are you going to ensure we don't get ta- you know taken down? Well, he throws his party. Look at the glory of Babylon. Yeah, Persia's coming, but we're we're Babylon, right? We're like nobody's been able to touch us. Because in fact, you remember Yahweh. Look at this. I'm, drink- I'm drinking wine out of Yahweh's vessels. Like I, that God that, that that conquered Egypt. Well, we conquered him. Right? That's what he's saying. That God that conquered Egypt, Babylon, took him down. And here's the cups to to prove it. So we don't need to be worried. Nobody could touch us. Let's celebrate Babylon. Let's celebrate the power of Babylon to the point that they're mocking the God of Israel. And as you can imagine, this is not going to end well. But that is indeed what is happening in this moment. So Belshazzar uses God's holy vessels, and he defiles God's holy vessels. Here's the question for you and I. Have you ever done that? Have you ever taken God's holy vessel and lament for holy use and defiled it and used it for sin and, and your glory and your debauchery? You're like, Jordan, I don't, I don't, what are the cups, bro? Like, what, what would I take? Like, the communion cups? Like, what would we, you know, is that, is that the equivalent? Here's the deal. Here, ask yourself this question. What are the vessels of God today? What are the vessels of God today? It's us, it's our bodies, right? You know that, First Corinthians chapter 6, elsewhere, but Paul says, hey, do you not remember that you are the temple of the living God? So there he's saying, hey, don't go unite with a prostitute, that, that, that doesn't work, the, the, the holy God is living within you, don't just go and, and you know, defile it by acting however you want. So the question for us is, before we judge this Belshazzar dude, like we need to think, okay, we are the temples of God. If you're here and you're a Christian, that may sound weird to you, but here's the deal. God created us to be in his image and in relationship with him. That our hearts, that longing in your heart for something that this world doesn't seem to satisfy, maybe you've tried, right? Maybe you've, you know, given yourself over to sex, pleasure, you know, fill in the blank, and and you realize it's not satisfied. Maybe you haven't admitted it yet, but you know it in the back of your mind that this stuff I'm trying is not not filling this, this hole or this void that's within me. You know why? Ecclesiastes says that God's put eternity in the heart of men, that we're made to be in relationship with him. And without him, we're going to constantly long for, as Augustine said, that our hearts are going to be restless until we find our rest in God. Why? Because we're made to be with God. So, Jesus comes, and the glory that we just celebrated in communion is that he takes our sin, dies in our place, erases the debt of of sin and wrath against us so that we can now be indwelled by God himself, right? That, that That we're not just headed to heaven and we get to be with him then, that at the moment of being born again, if we realize we're a sinner and that Jesus is the only Savior and we confess him as Lord... The Bible says we're born again, we get a new heart. He takes out the heart of stone, he puts in a heart of flesh, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So we are God's dwelling place. We are God's temple. That's why we don't make a big fuss about our buildings anymore. That's why you're in a pole building, right? This is not a big deal. God lives in you. You all brought God in here with you. There's a concentrated amount of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because y'all are here. It's an awesome thing. So when we take our bodies and defile them, Right, when we place in our bodies things that ought not be there, when we spit in God's face by saying, I know you meant for this to be used used for holy worship. I know you meant for this to be used to glorify you, but you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do. Then we are like Belshazzar, partying it up and defiling God's vessels. It's supposed to house the Holy Spirit, and yet we fill it with pornography. We fill it with... Sexual immorality. We fill it with overeating. Right? Gluttons. We self-medicate. Not to mention the obvious drunkenness and substance and things that we turn to and put in the vessel of God, put in our bodies that are meant to house God and be used for his glory, all of those things are just as defiling and are just as filthy to God as Belshazzar clinking together glasses of wine and throwing this nasty party. Here's the deal. We've all done that to varying degrees. We've all Defiled our cups. We've all defiled these vessels of body and, and of our bodies. And, and the only way to get our cup clean, the only way to be purified is through Jesus. Right? First John says that if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. There's beauty in that. That's the gospel promise. That if, if we do confess our sins, that He's faithful and just to forgive us but also to cleanse us. So many of us, we don't focus on the, the last part of that. We know we're forgiven, right? We know that, God, that Jesus made a way so that we could be forgiven and go to heaven, but you need to know that we are also cleansed. There's beauty in the Old Testament day of atonement. They would slaughter two animals and one, they would place the sins on that animal, right? As, as the one who would bear the burden and pay the cost, right? That, that, that animal was slaughtered Blood scattered on the altar so that they could bear the burden of the sins, but then they would would pray and and put the, the sins on another animal and send them off into the wilderness as a sign of removing those sins. So it's not just forgiving, but a cleansing. That's the offer of the gospel. And for those of us that just stop at forgiveness and we don't confess, we don't stay in this posture of repentance, but we just made one confession at one point, and now we're just doing the best to appear as good as we can and we hide our sin. We are missing out on the gospel cleansing that, that Jesus has for us, that he purchased for us, that he carried away for us. Jesus didn't just become the one lamb, but he also became the animal who carried away our sins. So that we didn't have to bear them anymore. Like this is good news. And and we as a culture have gotten really bad at confessing our sins. We've gotten really bad at this perpetual posture of repentance and knowing that we're not just, you know, pretty good people who needed Jesus to get us over the hump, but that all of life is, is a life of repentance, that all of, of our of our posture as Christians should be continually repenting of our sins and being cleansed by him. So as you're gonna see, that's gonna be the theme, is this. This invitation, but also this warning and this judgment that you're not getting away with anything, and one day you will be exposed, and that's exactly what Belshazzar is going to experience here as we get into verse 5. So this party, I want you to think about it, it's, it's crazy, like off the rails, like whatever you've seen or on, you know, movies of frat parties and uh, not MTV, I don't think that's a thing anymore, but whatever glorifies the debauchery of today's world, go ahead and crank it up. Go ahead and crank it up a lot. This is a crazy, crazy scene. And in the midst of that, verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. So, like, picture this, huge party, indoors. All of a sudden, everybody's attention is drawn to this wall, and a human hand appears, not the body, just the hand, And starts writing on the plaster. I don't know, like I like to picture that it's like writing in the plaster. That it's just like, you know, and everybody's hearing it. I don't know. Regardless, he's writing on the plaster opposite the lampstand. There's, there's speculation. We don't know for sure, but this may have been the lampstand from the temple, which was there to be the presence, like it's the lampstand of the presence of the bread, right? That was there to, to shine the light, to remind us that God is present, that God is here. And, and that lampstand is there, and it sort of casts the light on this wall, and this hand shows up. It starts writing, and everybody immediately freaks out. There is, a, there is a collective sobriety that happens in that moment. Oh, snap, right? That's what is happening in this moment. And the king saw it as he wrote. I want you to imagine what he's thinking. How drunk am I, right? Like, what? And then he looks like, is it just me? Like, am I I'm hallucinating? Who put, what did they put in there? Like, like I want you to, but then he looks around and sees that everybody sees it. The transition from like, what am I seeing to, oh, this is, this is happening, and this is a reality. I want you to, the, the flushing of his body, the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. If you've ever been caught, anybody ever been caught doing anything? That feeling that happens? I remember I was a kid in uh, like junior high, and we thought it was cool to cuss. I think I've told this story somewhere before, but I thought it was cool to cuss. And So me and my buddy would call each other after school, because uh, we couldn't text. That wasn't a thing. We'd call each other on landlines. More about that in a minute. But, and we'd talk, and we talk about people, and we, you know, we'd, we'd make ourselves feel cool by throwing out a bunch of words that were, you know, not even okay for adults to say, and that's what we did. Well, we were doing that one day, and I don't know who we were talking about. I don't know what we were talking about. I just remember the moment when my mom picked up the other line, and for those of you kids, these phones used to be connected to walls, and you'd have like one in each room, and, and, and if somebody would make a phone call, they'd pick up, and it's on the same line. Anyway, so it's what my mom does. She picks up the phone to, to make a phone call, and she hears me and my buddy just just laying into whoever or whatever and dropping as many four-letter words as we can, can think of, not even using them right. I mean, it's just, it's dorky, but it's what we were doing. And she goes, excuse me? And my color changed, <laughs> right? You can imagine, because my mama didn't mess around. <laughs> like, and I was like, uh, 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 and I just hung up, and I blamed it all on him.
1: <laughs> I blamed it all on my
0: buddy. I was like, yeah, he's, he's been running a really rough crowd lately, and she was like, you better not be talking like that, and like, she laid into me, it was a bad day. And then, like, my, it's funny, my, my buddy wouldn't come around my mom for like two years, uh, <laughs> Anyway, anyway, I was just a total coward, just threw him under the bus. But that was that moment for me. I remember another moment. I was in junior college, and uh, I was in the class with my favorite professor. If anybody went to SIC, and you remember Dr. Ray, this guy was amazing. He would, st- he would jump up on desk and yell as he was telling history. It was awesome. Dr. Ray was awesome. He's my favorite teacher. I would take his classes, even though they weren't necessary for my major, just because he was awesome. I got kicked out of his class one day. It was a horrible day. I was a, I was a pretty good kid at that point, you know, after my mom whooped me back in junior high. kind of was, a, you know, pretty straight and narrow. And so I was a pretty good kid. So me and my buddy were talking and cutting up, and he straight up stopped his class, called us out, and told us to leave. Like, no warning, no, like, whatever, and my color changed. I was like, <gasps> like, no, was, everybody's looking at us. we got to get up and leave. They're like, leave the class. Sorry, Dr. Ray. Never do it again. Like, it was an awful feeling. I let down the guy I loved, and it was totally exposed. It was a horrible, like, the rest of the day, like, me and my buddies just left the room, and we were just looking at each other. It was a horrible day. We got caught. Listen, here's the deal. This is not a parent. This is not a teacher, college professor. This is the God of the universe. And he shows up, and there's an immediate realization that, oh, snap. Oh, snap. Immediate realization The King's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his his like there's a physical reaction, his limbs gave way, his knees knocked together, like that's cartoon stuff, but that's like literally he is losing control of his body. The king called loudly, bringing the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. What's he doing? Well, when we get in trouble, a lot of times we'll turn to what? Turn to religion, right? We get in trouble, we get called out, we realize what we're doing ain't working, I better turn to some form of religion. This happens a lot, right? This happens often you see this fake somebody gets caught gets busted gets you know caught in an affair caught in an addiction or whatever now all of a sudden they're going to come to church they're going to do things right and maybe it, and, and, and praise God sometimes that's real sometimes God uses that to tr- transform them other times it's just throw throwing out there right oh I need some help getting out of this the Lord I, you know I promise if you you know get me out of this I'll never do it again anybody seen the video of that that sheep being pulled out of that crack it's going around lately it's hilarious because it's tagged like, Lord, if I promise you, get me out of this. I'll never do it again. They pull the sheep out of the cracky. It takes two jumps and right back in. That's us. That's us. But but this is where he's at. He's turned into spirituality. He's turned into religion. Somebody help me, right? Help me. I, I, he realizes he's not the most powerful man in the world anymore. He's just got called out, and so he turns to spirituality. These are the spiritual advisors. These are the wise men, and they got nothing. He, he says, hey, bring them in. Bring them here now. He calls out loudly. Everybody can hear. The party stops, right? Light switches on, DJ's off. Like the party stops. And he says, Somebody tell me what this means. And he says, Whoever can do it, I'm going to reward them. He says, They shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold. Nothing really changes, does it? Think of the culture and the hip hop. Like, anyway, it's, I'm just saying, that's what they're. They, they, he says, I'll, I'll make you the. the we'll, we'll give you some bling. If you, can, if you can handle this. And you'll be the third ruler in the kingdom. He says, so my dad's here, and me, I'll make you next in line. If you can tell me the interpretation of this writing. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make it known to the king its interpretation. It's incredible. It's actually a simple writing. It's without its vows. I can't get into all of that. But nonetheless, every time God shows up, God's speaking to this king. Only God's people, only Daniel can interpret because this God, he wants to be clear. This is God speaking. Verse 9. King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So he's freaked out initially. Somebody give me some answers. These guys come in. They got no answers. Now he's really scared. Now he's really scared. That's worth noting. Verse 10. The queen, because of the the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods uh, dwells. Who is this queen? Well, it's not his wife, because she was already there. Okay, so what most historians think is that this is actually probably Nebuchadnezzar's wife who's still alive and in the kingdom. Or possibly his son, the first heir after Nebuchadnezzar, his wife. But nonetheless, this is a, a matriarch who's been present. She's not ruling, but she's still in the kingdom and is well respected. And so she walks in and sees, you know, grandson here. He calls him father. You're going to hear that language. That's not... In the Hebrew, that, that that word "father" is used as predecessor or ancestor, right? So it doesn't necessarily uh, mean it, it's the familial biological father. He's just saying your predecessor. And so, so she, she rolls in, right? She's got some age on her, got some wisdom on her, wisdom with her, and she walks in. She knows this party's happening. She hears he's freaked out, and she comes in and says, "Yeah, you got busted, didn't you, buddy?" Right? She sees that he's he's made a mess of Dad's temple. He's stepped off in it big time, and she goes, "Well, you need an answer. There's this guy." There's this guy. Think about it. It's 20 years since uh, Nebuchadnezzar repented, several years since he's died, four kings now later, and she says, hey, there's this guy. There's a man in your kingdom, he said, she says, in whom the spirit of the holy gods, whom we know is the spirit of the one and only God, but he, that dwells in him. He's, in the days of your father... Light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. So she says, hey, nobody can answer a lot of these questions, and Daniel would show up. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, made him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, and Chaldeans, and astrologers. So um, at this point, we don't know if Daniel is, like, retired, or if just with these new, you know, administrations, he just wasn't, you know, in charge anymore, or if he's out. Like, we don't know, but he gets called in, right? He's, he's brought in, and she says, hey... This guy's proven himself able to handle these sort of situations. Maybe you should call him. Verse 12. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, to explain riddles, to solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Okay? So, So this queen comes in and says, hey, you're called on the carpet. You might want to call this guy named Daniel. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. This is an awesome scene. I want you to picture Daniel. He's an old man, right? I think he's a tough old dude. Maybe Clint Eastwood like. We don't know. But he's got some age on him, right? And he's walking up to this young punk. (laughs) Would you have that picture in your mind for this exchange? And the king answered and said to Daniel, you were the Daniel, the one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. Well, that's not really how it went down, is it? If you remember, like it wasn't like a nice invitation to come be in, in Babylon. It was nowhere to conquer your land. We're going to take you in ropes and chains and walk you 700 miles on your feet and then castrate you and then make you live a life of, you know, vegetal. Like it's, 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 you know, he's leaving out some details. He's telling the narrative the way he wants it to be told. Does that sound familiar? Um, but that's, that's, he's like, yeah, you're that guy that my, my you know, my father, the Nebuchadnezzar, brought out of Judah. I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you, verse 14. And that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. So he says, hey, I hear you You got some chops when it comes to handling these things. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, they've been brought in to read this writing to make known to me its interpretation. And they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I've heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. So now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you should be clothed with purple. He's going to give him the hip-hop life. Clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck. And you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Listen to Daniel. This is awesome. Daniel answered and says... Keep your, keep your gifts, son. Let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to somebody else. Nevertheless, I'll tell you the interpretation. So Daniel says, no thanks, buddy. Not interested. Already been a ruler in this kingdom. You know, some speculate that while Nebuchadnezzar was eating grass in the yard, that Daniel actually ruled in his stead. We don't know that. But Daniel's not interested in this promotion in this kingdom that is about, out, actually about to come to an end that night. Daniel's not in, into it. He's not interested. He's not, he doesn't want to be a politician. He's not chasing power. He's not chasing influence, right? He's, he already serves a king. He's already got a gig, right? And he knows he's going to inherit a kingdom, praise God. He's not worried about that. He knows this kingdom's headed down, and he says, Sonny, keep your gifts. But I'll tell you what's up. I'll tell you the interpretation, and you ain't going to like it. I want you to imagine that the, like, this is an awesome, like, he's taking him out back and showing him who's who. Like, he's saying, "Young, like you think you know what's up. Let me just tell you. And I want you to imagine, again, the confrontational courage that it takes for Daniel to stand up and tell this this man that things aren't going well. And that's indeed what he's going to do. He's going to give him a a rebuke. we got to keep in mind, sometimes we don't just need a word of encouragement. Right? We can't reduce church and Christianity down to some, you know, self-help motivational talk to make us feel better and do better in life. Sometimes you don't need encouragement. You need a rebuke. You need a rebuke. You need to be judged. And that's exactly what God is doing, and that's exactly the message that Daniel delivers. But again, watch this, he doesn't jump right into interpretation. he's going to give him a lesson. he's going to just show him what's up. 18. he says, "O king, most high, hey, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father, the kingship in greatness and glory and majesty." He says say hey, you know that guy you like to attach yourself to that conquered all this? Yeah, God gave him all of that. And because of his greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar. When he would, have, <clears throat> and, and whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. He's saying, listen, son, you think you got it going on. Nebuchadnezzar actually had power. People actually f- were terrified of him. He killed whoever he wanted. He lifted up whoever he wanted. The whole world feared Nebuchadnezzar. You ain't done anything, son, so you, you need to you know, um, put on your big boy pants because you're about to get called out. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he, dwelt, that he dealt prou- proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. This is a recounting of chapter 4. And he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was like was was with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. He says, I know you think you're big stuff with your power. Nebuchadnezzar was actually big stuff, and God put him in the dirt, eating grass, sleeping outside. Why? So that Nebuchadnezzar would know. God ruled not him. And you, his son, or his, his uh, you know, the guy who's, you know, again, it's not a biological thing, but the guy who inherits the throne, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. So he's saying, you saw all this go down, and you have not humbled yourself, but you've lifted yourself up, not just in general, but against the Lord of heaven and the vessels that you brought Out of his house and before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have have drunk wine from, and you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see nor hear or know. Right? So he says, You're here, you're clanking these things together, mocking God and and praising these gods of gold, silver, and wood. He said, And they don't see what's going on. They don't, they're not going to be able to call you out, but God, in whose hand is your breath. This is an awesome confrontation. I love it. And whose all of your ways you have not honored. He says, listen, son, you've stepped off in it big time. You don't know who you're mocking. And, and he's not just some generic God of gold and silver. He's the God most high. He sees what's happening and he's here to call you out. This this is a, an awesome, awesome moment. And and here's here's the deal. Um this, this could seem harsh. It's a young dude, right? Give him some grace. Like he, maybe he didn't know, right? But, but God's going to get real aggressive. This guy's going to die tonight. This could seem harsh to, to, to think of God's judgment on Belshazzar here. But here's what we can deduce. Because it, it, as, as we see the harshness and the, 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 the swiftness of this judgment, it should stand in comparison and contrast with the last chapter, which made us marvel at the patience of God in Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that? Like 30 years, Nebuchadnezzar has an opportunity to hear the the power of God and to repent and humble, and he doesn't. And even to the point that he gives him a final warning, says, hey, I'm going to give you a year. If you repent, I'll extend your kingdom. If not, I'm going to put you in the dirt like the beast. He doesn't do it. He puts him in the dirt, and then he allows him to be restored, right? So God shows this incredible kindness to Nebuchadnezzar. This joker is getting called out immediately, and what we can kind of reduce from that is that we are supposed to learn from the previous generation. We are supposed to learn from the previous generation. You do not get this just blanket, you know, slate of ignorance that says, oh, well, I didn't know, or oh, I I thought I had time. We are supposed to learn from the mistakes and the wisdom of the previous generation. I want you to think for a moment. What have you witnessed? Maybe in your own home, maybe generally, country or in the church. What have you witnessed? that you know you should have learned from, that you know you should do better, that you should let that teach you, and yet you haven't, right? Maybe it's, for some of you, it's just the passivity of your fathers. Men, some of you, you you observe fathers, your dad was just passive. He didn't engage. He didn't pursue his wife. He didn't confront his children. He didn't read the Bible. He didn't take them to church. He was just passive. Maybe he's disengaged. Maybe he just watched TV. Like, I I don't know, some of you, that's what it was. Maybe you observed addiction in your home. Maybe you observed, you know, chauvinism and just real disrespect toward your wife. Like, I I don't know what it was. Maybe you saw them working too much, both parents. Maybe you saw grandparents. Maybe you saw racism in your family line, and you know you should have learned from it, but instead you've just sort of let it dwell in you as well. You've not squashed that in, in your own life. And here's the deal. You may think you got time, right? Maybe you know that. Oh well, Dad. You know, maybe Dad repented when he was in his fifties or or on his deathbed or whatever. And you think you've got that sort of time? Well, here's the deal. This guy's getting called out as a young man, and and Daniel explicitly says you knew all of this, and yet you have not humbled yourself. You need to be honest. Pushing on the on the men in particular, but women, same thing. You saw bitterness, resentment toward. From your mom toward her husband, or or I, I don't know, you fill in the blank. What have you seen perpetuated in your family line that you need to stop? You, you need to put an end to that cycle, and yet you've just let it abide in you. Objectifying women, objectifying yourself if you are a woman, like what... What have you seen? You know it hasn't gone well, and yet you've slipped right into it. We are meant to learn from the previous generation. We are called to remember. Over and over again, God will call his people to remember the previous generation. You remember those Israelites? They didn't didn't trust in God. They ended up 40 years paying for that. 40 years. They got to wander around in the desert and not inherit the promised land. And then over and over and over again, their kid's generation, who would inherit the promised land, is told to do what? Remember. 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 Remember, don't let yourself off the hook. Take the warning from the previous generation seriously. So that's the scene, the context that Daniel sets. He doesn't just walk in and give him the the interpretation. He sets all this context before this young joker and says, that's what's happened. That's where you've been. That's the bigger picture. It ain't all about you, bud. And you failed to humble yourself And that's why this hand has showed up and caused you to wet yourself in front of all your friends, buddy. That's what's going on. The hand of God has showed up. Verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. So Daniel says, this is the God who holds your breath in in his hand. You've mocked him. You're spitting in his face. He's the one that confronted Nebuchadnezzar, put him in the yard. I don't know if you remember that part of history, but that God has now sent this hand into your presence and this writing was inscribed, real quick, think about the finger of God. This, that's all he has to send. That's all God has to send to this incredible kingdom of Babylon to say, hey, I'm about to handle this. The finger of God is referenced all throughout Scripture. Exodus 8, when, when the plagues are going on, the people in, in Egypt go, man, that was the finger of Yahweh. Exodus 31, God writes the Ten, the Ten Commandments. What? His finger. Later, John 8, you know the story of the woman caught in adultery when Jesus bends down and writes in the, in the dirt? What's he write with? His finger. Finger of God is all that it takes to handle his business. This is his way of saying, Babylon, it's not even heavy lifting for me. Like, I don't even need to send my whole arm. And he's going to take down this kingdom. It's an incredible testament to the power of our God. He gets a lot done with just his finger. Verse 24, this is what he says. Verse 25, right? And this is the meaning that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. So that was what was written on the wall. This is interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom, and has brought it to an end. Okay, that's a crazy statement. He says God's the one that gave Nebuchadnezzar the power and brought Babylon in, and he says it's time. Chips are being called for. Twenty-seven, Tekel, and you have been found, weighed in the balances, and found, or you've been weighed in the balances and found. Wanting, says you, son. God's judged you, and it ain't the verdict's in, and and you're less than it. it, It's you've been found wanting. And Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Here's the deal. Um, Judgment is both needed and it's coming. Judgment is both needed. And it's coming. And we, as God's people, need to be careful how we posture ourselves against that. Because we are quick to cheer when judgment comes to our enemy, aren't we? When so and so gets called out for their ignorance, or this party, or this people group, when they get called out, we're excited about that, you know, because we see them as the problem. But here's the deal many feel like, Judgment is what's coming upon America as we sort of enter into this this moral revolution and there's a lot going on and many talk about judgment of God coming on America and and I wouldn't disagree with you. However, I would just quickly note to you that the Bible says that the judgment of God starts in the household of God. What do you mean by that? When God is looking down at the mess of this world, he expects this nonsense from people who don't know him. But he's given his people his word. He's given his people the spirit. We don't have an excuse. We don't get to claim ignorance. And he says the times of God overlooking sin and ignorance is over. He's coming for judgment. So listen, judgment is needed and it is coming. And we need to start by reflecting on ourselves. We need to start by looking inwardly because many of you are in rebellion to God and you don't intend to repent because you don't feel the need. You don't feel the need. Like Nebuchadnezzar last week, you look down on other people, you compare yourself to them, you don't think you need repentance. And yet, this passage is exposing all of us as a people who are in need of judgment. So the reality here, here's the deal, church. The reality is that there's a lot of hidden sin represented here in this congregation. A, A crowd this size, unfortunately, I haven't had to be in ministry long to know that there's a lot of hidden sin right here. There are are those of you that are enslaved to addiction and nobody knows about it. You're abusing pills, alcohol, pornography. Maybe it's actual sex physically with with other people. Like, maybe it's gambling. Maybe it's credit cards. Man, I've, again, I haven't been at this that long, but I've heard too many stories, too many stories of one spouse having a mountain of credit card debt that the other one had no idea about. You've heard him too. So what that means is that we live for a long time in this pretending and in this hiding. It happens all the time. Maybe you're in an emotional affair. You know you've gotten too close to somebody at work or somebody in church. Like you know, you know it's happening. You think you got it under control, but you need to know that God sees it and he's exposing you. It'll be exposed to everybody at some point. The opportunity is for us to repent now while his breath is still in our lungs and while there's forgiveness and restoration available. That's the the sobering reality of this text is is that while we have an opportunity, we should be repenting and laying it all out there because here's the deal. The judgment's already in. That's what this says. like you've already been weighed and you have been found wanting. The judgment is already in. The time to repent is now while we still have his breath in our lungs. You have been weighed and found wanting. You say, well, Jordan, you don't know me. I don't have to. The Bible says that all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God and we need a savior, period. If not, we're headed to hell. That's what we deserve. It's his justice. Some of you are like, well, I know, but I, I've been saved, and you know, I, I, I prayed that prayer, but here's the deal. Have you continually come back to him for your cleansing? Have you trusted him with all of your life? Have you laid it all bare so that he can cleanse you, so that he can bring you into a relationship with him that causes you to thrive even in the midst of the chaos of this world? This is the good news of the gospel. This message that was given to this knucklehead of a king is actually laid on all of us. This this hey, the interpretation is God has numbered your days of your kingdom and has been brought to an end. We've all got that. It was appointed a man wants to die. Wages of sin is death. That's all of us. Ten out of ten die. It's coming. That, that that's just true of all of us. And you have been weighed and found wanting. That means God has already taken our like there. There won't be a scale to see if your good outweighs the bad. It's already been judged, and the bad outweighs the good. Period. All of us. There's not just like good people and then you know really really bad people. No, there's all bad people, and then there's Jesus, and then Jesus makes a way for us bad people to be brought into forgiveness and into hope because he's the only good one. And so that that's the, that's the truth is that and our kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and Persians like you're like, "Well, I don't have a kingdom." Well, here's the deal. You can't take it with you. You hear things like that, writings on the wall, can't take it with you. Sound familiar? It's coming from the Bible, right? You don't get to take all of your riches, all of your glory, all of your prestige, your honor, whatever you whatever you're working for. It's going to be demanded of you. This is the Old Testament equivalent of the of the guy who builds bigger barns and says, "You know what? i got all I need. Let me eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says that very night, his soul was demanded, was demanded of him. You don't know that you have more time. You don't know how much time you have. And I would not be loving if I didn't preach that. You need to repent now. I know it'll be costly. I know it'll be a mess. I know it may break your spouse's heart. It may crush your life for a bit. But it's still Better to run to God while there's still breath in your lungs, so that his mercy, you know what that is? That's you don't get what you actually do deserve. So his mercy may be given to you in Jesus. Then Belshazzar gave, so this is how he responds. He goes, All right, get that dude a chain and some purple, purple clothes. Put it around his neck, and the promotion, a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler of the kingdom. That's that's his move. He doesn't hit his face. He doesn't humble himself. He just goes, "Cool, thanks for that. Here's your reward." And Daniel, I'm sure, walks away shaking his head because it says that very night Belshazzar, the king, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received two or received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That's one verse. It's an incredible story. You need to look at it through history. I want to tell you a quick how this happened. While they're in this party, I told you that the Medo-Persian Empire is marching on them. This should be a movie. This is incredible. They're marching down on him. They know that. They know this party's happening. Again, you don't invite a thousand lords and their wives and everybody without it being a pretty big cultural thing, right? Everybody knows this party's going on. Well, guess what? Darius, the Mede, he's leading this army. And guess what? We've got a picture of the city of Babylon, Jess, but it's, it's this incredible city that is fortified with walls that are impressive to everybody. Nobody's been able to get into Babylon. Nobody. They, they could try, but they ain't getting in. These walls, they, they'd say every time a new king would take it, they'd kind a of layer on, right? Look at us. This incredible, incredibly fortified city stands at the heart of this great empire, and they are good. They, they, are, they are in lockdown. Nobody's getting in. And they got all the supplies they need. And guess what? The mighty Euphrates River runs right through the city. You see that? Runs right through the city. And they've got walls, bridges, you know, built over it. But the water's running right through there. Well, what they don't know is Darius, this dude's smooth. This guy was on some other campaign, and he couldn't get across the river. And he decided to get out of shovels and divert the river and, like, a whole bunch of other branches so his his boys could walk across. So Darius rolls up, and this party's going on, and he says, you know what? We're going to divert the Euphrates River. It's crazy. So they dig a bunch of channels. They step back from the city, dig a bunch of channels, divert the river. Now all of a sudden, water's like waist high. They walk right under the wall and right into the city. Start slitting throats, killing guards, old boys clanking together God's glasses. And he dies that night. That night, God comes for him. You say, well, how could, what's going on? What what about God's people in this? You remember that feeling you had when you wondered how God could use Babylon, this crazy, evil nation, to to judge his people in Israel? You remember that back in chapter one? How could God do that, right? How does God judge his people with this evil nation? Well, here's the deal. Because he knew, yeah, he's going to use Babylon to judge his people, but he's going to use the Medo-Persian Empire to judge them, right? That he's in control, even in the midst of What nobody can see, God is still in control. God has this thing figured out. He has a plan, and he's going to use another pagan nation to judge Babylon. It's a crazy story, and that's how it ends. Belshazzar shows up at the beginning of chapter 5, breathes his last at the end. The Bible says that's a lot like our life, like a vapor, like a mist. It's there in a moment. It's gone next. Don't think you have more time. Don't think you can do this later. Get over yourself. Humble yourself and receive the life that only God can give. That's the good news of the gospel. You walk out of here with anything less and you've missed the point of the gospel. You think you've got to try harder, do better, get over your sins, and then you could come to him you've missed the point of the gospel. When you realize the invitation is to come, filthy as you are, cup all kinds of nasty, he says, Come. Your sins, be as scarlet. I'll make them white as snow. How? You got to come up here and get a list of things to do good? No, 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 no. Come and confess that Jesus is the Lord, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that he is that Savior. The Bible says you can be forgiven. You can be restored to life in the Lord. It's good news, church. It's good news if you take it. I know hearts are hard. I know the cost is high of confessing your sins and and repenting. But if you continue to stay in that sin, you continue to be caught up in your addiction, not telling yourself, like, you're not winning. You will be called to account. God will not be mocked. But you do have an opportunity to repent while there's still his breath in your lungs. Let's do that. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would um, just come and and, and send your spirit to move in the midst of this room that has all sorts of stuff going on, and we don't know them, and I don't pretend to, but you do, Lord. You see, and I pray that each of us would, would feel the spirit of God confronting and exposing us so that we can receive life and salvation and cleansing today. Give us courage to step out and to humble ourselves before you at this altar. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.